like last week, we have a few people here for the first time and I always want to uh, apologize for, uh, to you for having to come in in the middle of a series because one of the hardest things I find to do is how much to recap and how much not to. And I know today is going to be too long anyway, so I don't have much to recap. But in, uh, in our series, talking about the power of the cross, we preach Christ crucified and the power of the cross is a stumbling block to believers. I knew that this day would come. I knew that when we started this series, here's where we were gonna go. I kept uh, telling you, I kinda warned you that the nature of the power, the misunderstanding of what the power of the cross is, today and next week and uh, probably are gonna have to go uh, into January. I hope you don't mind. But uh, to, to get at the nature of that power. And we switched um, our focus on history, on prophetic history. And a couple weeks ago, I started talking about the seven churches and the eras of Christianity from Jesus ascending back to heaven, the founding of the, of the church, at least the disciples' church who passed it on to us all the way to our day and all the way into the future. We started with Ephesus and Ephesus loses her first love. The church right off the bat tends to forget that God has loved her and always will love her, the first love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Smyrna, the next era, remembers that love and they begin to empty themselves to death of persecution. The era of persecution begins. And then all of a sudden in the era, it just ends. That persecuted era, that, that church, that martyred church that we looked at last week. It just ends, the persecution ends. I wanna ask you, do you think it's because the empire thought it was found out or realized of themselves that it was wrong to just accuse and slander and make poverty out of the church simply because it was wrong? Do you think Rome all of a sudden adopted a policy of religious freedom and tolerance? No, she did not, did she? We said that the era of church history uh, in Smyrna ended in 313 CE. The end of the persecution ended in that date for a reason, a particular date, and it starts at a bridge. It starts at a bridge. This bridge here, today is what it looks like there today, and it's, it's bridged by, it, it, each entrance has two statues to the beginning of it. And I have to tell you, I used to know all four of them, I only know three of them now, but there's only one that's important, and I'll get to that. But this is the Milvian Bridge, the Ponte Milvio. In the year 312, the Roman Empire is fragmented with two emperors, actually. Actually, it started with seven. There were about seven emperors and they fought a series of wars that brings them down to these two, Constantine I and Maxentius, both trying to unify Rome under one emperor. The armies meet at this bridge, at this bridge. The day before, it is said that Constantine and his forces notice something in the sky. They notice a sign in the sky. It's actually over the sun. It's a Greek letter key and it's a Greek letter rho. It's an X and a P is what it looks like. And they come together like this. And, and they see it in the sun. Constantine then goes to sleep that night and that vision is affirmed by a dream he said he had. 
He said that he had the dream. He saw the sign in the sun again, and he heard a voice say, with this sign, you shall conquer. He wakes up the next day. He commands that the sign be painted on every shield and every banner that they have. And since he knows that this is from God, it is said that he marched his he marched his army, the entire army, through the river, through the Tiber River, in order to get to the battlefield, thus baptizing them with their brand new power. And the reason that I only emphasized that one picture, that one picture, the one right here, that one statue, that's actually a statue of John the Baptist. It's even there today. By the way, it wasn't there back in Constantine's day. That was put up probably in the 1400s or so. Well, he won the victory and it begins to change the empire. It begins to change Christianity. And as a matter of fact, it begins to change the world. See, he flies the banner from victory to victory after this. A year later, he, he gives out the Edict of Milan, granting Christianity tolerance, and eventually, it becomes the official sponsored religion of the Roman Empire. This is why the era of persecution ends. The church is no longer persecuted. The church is actually now sponsored by the empire. It gives the church an opportunity, gives the church an opportunity to have power that she never ever had before. Never had before. So we know the history. We know the results. We're living nearly 2,000 years later. We know the results. But what did Jesus say about this era prophetically? What did he say to John to tell us prophetically about this era? The next church is the church at Pergamum. And it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you're holding fast to my name. You did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of who? Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So the era after Constantine, how's the church doing? Not too bad, actually. See, we, uh, Miriam just shook her head, and, and you're right to shake your head because you're looking at the last verse. But you forget what the verse came before. The verse that came before, it says that there are some that are holding to false teachings, but for the most part, they're hanging in there, aren't they? Remember the message to Smyrna was hang in there. And to Smyrna, that was no small message. Hang in there because to Smyrna, they actually were gonna die, right? Told them to hang in there. The church now is hanging in there. Even though it begins this era, this new era of Christianity, if you will, in history. They're not doing bad, they're not doing bad, they're hanging in there. But, and it's a big but, capital B, capital U, capital T, they have some that begin to hold to what? To some false teachings. There are some, he says, that hold to the teachings of Balaam. In Numbers 24, if you remember the story of Balaam, Balaam was a prophet who lived in modern Mesopotamia. 
When the king of Moab realizes he can't fight Israel, he plans on finding a prophet of their God that would curse them. And he thinks that if he could get a prophet, a prophet, uh, uh, an actual prophet of their God, that if he cursed Israel, then he could defeat him. But of course, he gets a hold of Balaam. And what's funny about Balaam is that Balaam says, I can't what? I can't curse God. I can only do what God tells me. But, he says, but. And in three times he does this. Three times he prophesies. Three times he does it. And by the way, he gets paid each time he does it. And in the end, he doesn't end up cursing Israel. On the third time, the third time that he ends up getting paid, he says, I can't curse them, but would you allow me to lead them astray? Just a little bit. And at the end of the narrative, it says this, while Israel returned to Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of who? With the daughters of Moab, Balak's people, the Moabites, if you will. For they invited people to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. So that's what happened back then. Pergamum is being told that's what's going on now. And you think, okay, sure, sexual immorality and feasting to idols, that's pretty bad, okay, that's pretty bad. We don't get to how bad it really is because it's kind of behind the scenes. It's kind of behind the scenes. You see, it's happening to Pergamum right now. In other words, something that is, that is enforced, if you will, by another power, by somewhere else. Who is it? Who was it who was instituting the sacrificial rites and the sexual immorality in Balaam's time? It was Balak, wasn't it? It was a king. It was somebody in charge of a particular government, if you will. It was a king who was enforcing those. In Pergamum's day, it's similar because if you wanted to be a believer in the Roman Empire in the first century, you might have to do some things. You might have to take place in some civil religious rites. Why? Because the rulers, if you will, they claim to be religious people too. Except they worship what? They worship other gods. But you, you a believer in God, in the living God, you're living in this place. And one thing you might have to put up with is how much of the civil religion do we take part in? Because the civil religion has a power behind it. The power to be able to make you take part. You with me? And that could be exactly what's going on in Pergamum right now. See, one part of the civil religion of the empire was, was to have to practice this sexual immorality. And, and, and by the way, it's usually, I, I believe, normally what Paul is talking about when he's speaking to his churches, because every church that he wrote to were all uh, in the provinces of the Roman Empire. Every one of them had fertility gods that they worshiped, which meant that every one of them had some sort of civil ordinance as to you had to participate in these rites and practices. I won't go into details because on Sabbath it just isn't right. But it's some very lurid practices to be able to do it. At least once a year you were called to have to do this. 
in order to assure that there would be rain and good crops and peace in the community. Everyone, no matter what they personally believed, would participate in the civil religion. In other words, it didn't matter who you were, you participated in some sort of act to ensure the fertility of the land around them. That's what they believed gods were there for. And that gods needed to be appeased, they needed to be offered these acts of fertility. By the way, as Adventists, there was one other one that that Constantine did after the Edict of Milan. One civil religion that he instituted was this one. On the venerable what? Day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be what? Be closed. The Edict of Constantine, 321 CE, eight years into the era of Pergamum. So you get what I'm saying about civil religion? Who enforces civil religion? The government does. It's civil, right? It's civil. And how is a civil religion forced by the empire? Do you remember I told you that usually the church has a picture of Jesus that addresses their particular problem? To the church at Pergamum, remember how it started out? And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these words from the one who has the sharp, two-edged, what? Sword. Why? It's because Constantine is now using his sword as it was never used before. See, Constantine now has not only the sword on his side, he claims he has the cross on his side. In fact, it's painted on all his shields. Constantine supposedly had the power of the cross and the power of the sword, and he mixes the two constantly. See, maybe some things that Smyrna would have went to the lion's den for would never ever do. Now the church says, maybe we should do it because he has the symbol of the cross on his side too. So the church is first, the first time, for the first time in church history, they are confronted with whether or not they'll worship either or or both. And Constantine has made sure that they're gonna worship what? that they're gonna worship both. The church begins to understand, not understand basically, the church begins to forget what the power of the cross is and the difference between the power of the cross and the power of what? The power of the sword. See, the persecution just isn't there anymore. They're not being persecuted. You may think that being persecuted is a disadvantage for a church, but remember, Smyrna wouldn't be, uh, was being nothing but persecuted, and they would not give in. They were actually becoming martyrs, and Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. So I used to say that sometimes a little persecution is good for the church. Actually, now I say all the time, persecution is good from the church, providing it's coming from the right source providing it's coming from outside the church and not within the church. He adds to him, he says, repent then. If not, I'll come to you and I'll make war against them with what? With the sword of my mouth. You think Constantine's sword is strong? Let me, let me. 
See, and now we have all of a sudden an image in my mind. Constantine has so perverted the power of the cross and the sword that now I'm thinking that he's coming with a greater power. Actually, no. Jesus is coming with a power that Constantine never dreamed of using. The power of the cross, always remember, is power greater, power under. Love to the world always looks like it's what? Always looks like it's losing. But in this particular case, in prophetic history, Jesus said the power of love is the greatest power ever. And Constantine's sword cannot ever measure up to this. The period of compromised lands uh, lasts from 313 CE to 538. How will the church do now regarding this compromise? How does the church do? Now that she's compromised for a little bit under, under Constantine, how does she do? How does she do with this compromise? Does she get better or does she get worse? Let's see. To the angel of the church at Thyatira, right? These are the words of the son of God who has eyes like a what? Like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. Oh, not bad, huh? Not bad. Exactly what I was thinking about Pergamum. Not doing too bad. Not doing too bad. It's not bad. She's an active church. She has works of what? Of love, of faith, of service. She's a patient in church. By the way, this idea of having patient endurance is what God will commend the church for all through its history and future. Hold on to what you got. Have patient endurance. He who conquers, he who overcomes, he who has that endurance will always be what? Will always be blessed. So this doesn't sound bad at all. But actually, evil has infiltrated Pergamum and the church like you can't believe. It had just infiltrated Pergamum now where it was just a few who tolerated Jezebel's, uh, who tolerated Balaam's teachings. Now it permeates the church at Thyatira. And the reason being is, is because there's a difference as to who are the ones that are participating in the compromise. In Pergamum, it was a few people. Now, it's the leadership. See, now it's the leaders. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And forgive me, I've been, all week I've been confusing Balaam and Jezebel because I've been dealing with both of these churches. And I probably dealt with them for too long before I stepped up here. That woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a what? a prophet and his teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication, to eat food sacrificed by idols. Once again, we're back to the theme of what? Civil religion. This civil religion. Because Jezebel, it all is, is, is illustrated by Jezebel as to who we know Jezebel is. It says you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. The word has overtones of pardon. You forgive Jezebel, you're saying. There's a forgiveness here. You're, you, you, you are actually beyond uh, compromising. You're actually forgiving. You're condoning it. There's a sense where even the faithful people give out the message that what is being done is okay. 
What is the problem that even the faithful seem okay with this? The illustration is there in the person of Jezebel, who we know Jezebel is. Just like who we knew Balaam and Balak were, we know who Jezebel was. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. Good king, bad king. (laughs) There might have only been one king worse than Ahab. She was originally from Phoenicia, daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidon, priest of Baal and Astarte. Her father actually started the worship of Baal and Astarte. Astarte, horribly nasty fertility goddess. Baal, the husband of Astarte, if you will. She single-handedly led the king and all the people into the worship of Baal. By the time that Elijah comes on the scene, all of Israel is now worshiping who? Now worshiping two gods, actually. That's Elijah's problem. Elijah says, I have a problem with this. You guys are worshiping both. Remember on Carmel, he says, choose, choose which one, right? But the thing about Jezebel is that since her dad started it, she brings it to Israel when she marries Ahab. She personally supported all 450 prophets of Baal. They were on her payroll. She hated Elijah and anyone else who worshiped God. Dr. John Pauline reminds us that she continued her influence for generations, by the way, in the rule of her sons and her daughter, Athaliah, going all the way to 2 Kings 8. See, Pergamum was influenced by an outside force. Civil worship of Rome crept in from the outside, but now it comes from the inside. It comes from a manipulative, dominant queen. But the queen claims to be what? She claims to be a prophet. This goes beyond the civil uh, power of a queen, if you will. She claims to have religious power too. And she's operating within that religious system. The compromise of Pergamum is the power of the cross and the power of the sword and only a few people were catching on to it. Only a few people were doing it. Now it's the leaders of the church and the leaders of the government coming together, if you will. And how does she do it? How do they get away with it? I want you to note that Jezebel never forbade the worship of God. She never outlawed it, did she? She never outlawed the worship of God. She may have hated the worshipers of God, but she was never able or never would outlaw them. She promoted asynchronism. The word Baal itself in Hebrew can also mean uh, husband to marry or master. She promoted asynchronism, a a compromise of of true faith and pure pagan idolatry, and she did it all under the threat of the what? All under the threat of the sword. She swore after they killed all 450 prophets of Baal after Mount Carmel, she swore she was going to kill Elijah, didn't she? Do you think she was going to do it herself? No, she has an entire what? She has an entire army. So real quick, take a look. Ephesus, the post-apostolic era, their very first, they're dealing with heresies. 
But Jesus says, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you are, but I want you to remember that God loves you. See, because if you don't remember that God loves you, then the way that you deal with heresies will be unloving, and that's not what I'm about, he says, right? Smyrna is martyrdom. They remember God loves them. Smyrna then begins to give up their lives. Begins with the emperor Diocletian, ends with Constantine. Diocletian, Hadrian, all of these emperors were ones that were wiping out believers left and right. Pergamum begins the mixture of the civil and religious power. Thyatira, full-blown fruition of authoritative heresy. The, the heresy is coming from where? It's coming from the top. It's a religious power coming from the top, being enforced, religious power, if you will, carrying the sign of the cross, but being enforced by the sign of the what? The sign of the sword. So in Thyatira, it's instituted in 538 after the last Aryan threat, dismantled in 1563. This is the church of the Middle Ages. This is the medieval church. We've done some reading about that, haven't we? The church of the Inquisition, the church of the Crusades. Never in human history has history witnessed such prolonged persecution. The church has nearly complete control of the civilized world from about 500 to about 1300. All you have to do is just list the Crusades. First Crusade. 1096 to 1099, it's instituted by Urban II at the Council of Claremont. November 27th, 1095, thousands take up the cross with the cry, Deus Vult, God wills this. 1147, the Second Crusade. 1188, the Third Crusade. 1202 to 1204, the Fourth Crusade. 1212 was what was called the Children's Crusade. It's because they took so many prisoners of so many families and began to march them that thousands and thousands and thousands of children die from hunger and disease. Whether they were on the wrong side or on the right side. In 1208 to 1229, Innocent III orders the crusade against the Albigenses. As Adventists and readers of the great controversy, we've heard that name before, have we not? The Albigenses supposedly were part of the remnant, right? Those who remain, those who are still worshiping even in the midst of the power of this beast. They, they numbered a million over all of Europe by 1208. When it was all done, they only had a handful left. They had to make their way across the Alps in order to be able to join the Waldensians. I'll talk about that crusade next because there was a crusade against the Waldensians too. Matthew White, in his book, and I love the name of this book. In fact, it's on my shelf. As soon as I saw it, I had to buy it. The name of the book is The Great Big Book of Horrible Things. The Definitive Chronicle of History's 100 Worst Atrocities. Matthew White, estimate, Matthew White estimates, he says, I'd say three million total dead from the Crusades in the period covering 1095 to 1291. 
He goes on to say that estimates of the number of people killed in the Crusades begin at one million, according to historian Frederick Wortham, and go as high as nine million, according to historian John Robertson. Passing through three million by fielding Houston, uh, Hudson Garrison and five million by Thomas Elson along the way. White says, I took the low middle Garrison's estimate as my estimate. The geometric means of the extremes is three million. In other words, he's estimating as to how much the land held and multiplying it by the, the, the amount of land that it covered during that time. He says five million. But John Robertson, in his book, A Short History of Christianity, which was published in 1902, he says, I believe it's reasonable in calculation that in two centuries from the first crusade to the fall of Acre in 1291, there had perished in the attempts to recover and hold the Holy Land nine millions of human beings. And to remember this, at least half of them were Christians. Misery and chronic pestilence had slain most, but the mere carnage had been stupendous. So how'd she do with the compromise? How's the church doing? See, Revelation is not a chronological book. Would you repeat that back to me? Revelation is not a chronological book. It doesn't act in time from chapter one to chapter 21. In other words, it covers a period of time, but what Revelation is, it's a perspective book. See, it's the same period of time. Revelation covers only one period of time, the same period of time. That is the beginning of the church to the end of the church. It doesn't happen in chronology, but what happens is just about every chapter or so will give you a different perspective on the same era of time. We've been in chapter two and three, the perspective of that history to the church. This is how the church sees it because Jesus comes directly to the church and says, this is what it'll look like for you from now until Laodicea. In chapter 12 and 13, it's the same story from another perspective. It's actually the story coming from the beast and the dragon and the church, right? And the church. Let me ask you, when did the great controversy begin? A lot of people say it began at the fall because we fell, right? Sin, it happened, it's sin. Actually, no, when did it happen? Great controversy begins and war broke out where? In heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. They were not strong enough. There was no longer a place for them found in heaven. The great dragon thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The great controversy began long before the dragon ever fooled our parents into participating in the great controversy on his side, right? We didn't know it, Adam and Eve didn't know it yet, but they were already participating in the great controversy, but at the beginning they were on God's side, right? Dragon shows up, blows the whole thing. There was a war in heaven. Jesus wins, the dragon's cast down, has his final word for the earth because the dragon has been cast down. Rejoice then you heavens. (laughs) The heavens actually rejoice, why? Because the dragon's gone. But woe to 
Thanks, Jesus. I'm really encouraged. Woe to you. Why? Because the devil's come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is what? He knows that his time is short. The war is with Jesus, but the dragon can't get to Jesus. So the war is now on who? Jesus' believers, the church. Remember, I, I, like I said, I don't have a lot of, <laughs> I don't have the time that I really want to today, but I spent way too much time looking into this. Remember, the vision began in chapter 12 with a woman standing on the moon, clothed in the sun, wearing a crown of stars. Who's the woman? The church, the one that carries the light of Christ, right? So the dragon can't get at Jesus because Jesus was taken back up to heaven, so he's angry with who? He's angry with the woman. Goes to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The church, the battle at the end is a religious one. Based on two strategies, two churches vying for the rest of God's children. The great controversy will be finished out here. The dragon brings it. The dragon brings the war here, but he always remembers something. What he remembers was, was that he was not what? He wasn't strong enough. He lost in heaven, he believes, because he was not strong enough. So he's gonna rely on his strategy. He's going to need strength. So the first thing the dragon does is that he gets numbers, right? So he, he's, he, he rises a beast up out of the sea. It has 10 horns, seven heads. On its horns were 10 diadems. On its heads were seven, uh, were blasphemous names. He looks just like the dragon. That's exactly what the dragon looks like. The beast saw, that I saw, it was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave it his power and his throne and all of his authority. Strength comes from numbers, Earthly power relies on strength, on might, on numbers. The first thing the dragon does is begin to gather a what? An army. Only consists of two. Another beast, he rises out of the earth. It's got two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like a dragon. Not a very good-looking god, the dragon, right? Seven horns, 10 heads. It's not a very good looking God, but it's certainly attractive for those who decided that this is the way you get things done. The true church doesn't seem to be very good looking either because the true church, the God that, that worships, the, the God that the true church worships is a lamb that was slain. Given. Dead, resurrected, slaughtered, sacrificed, martyred. We're come to show that himself, God says, I will martyr myself to make sure that you're not on the losing end of this great controversy. Think about it. The Father comes to us in true love in true fashion, in true love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The dragon comes in his, host, in his own false trinity. Dragon as the father. The son being mimicked by the first beast and the Holy Spirit being mimicked by the second beast. But he thinks he's got it because he now has the number that he needs. 
a dragon and two beasts. He now has a team. He has a church. He has a trinity to worship. Although it's a what? It's a false trinity. And this church's power, look at when you read about this church's power, where does this church, where does this beast get his power? They worship the dragon, for he'd given his authority to the beast. They worship the beast saying, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? Listen to what's being proclaimed about the beast. Who can fight against it? Who's mightier than this? It exercises all the authority of the first beast, speaking of the second beast, on its behalf, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Listen how he gets it done. Who can what? Fight against it. It makes the earth and its inhabitants what? Worship the first beast. It causes those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. The language of the false church is the power of the sword. See, the language of the false church does not trust the first love of God, does not trust that people will be who they claim to be simply because God loves them. It shows shows the world a new way to worship. The cross is given a new power, a backup power, if you will, an enforcing power, if you will. The power of the sword. In history, where the church began to worship the beast is because she made the cross a weapon, an earthly weapon. I'm not denying that the cross is a weapon. I'm not denying that the power of the cross is the most powerful weapon ever constructed. It just isn't an earthly weapon. It doesn't get things done the way that Constantine's sword got it done. They use the power that gets things done in this kingdom. And by the way, it looks so good to everybody. It looks so good that the only way you're able to tell it apart is by how each God asks for your worship. This is how the beasts ask for your worship. Do it or what? Or else. So we feel pretty good. I know, I know, because we're sitting here as Protestants, right? So we feel pretty good about this, patting ourselves on the back. We're, nobody here wants to use an actual sword. We don't want to use a real sword, do we? Do we want to go out and knock on doors and say, you need to worship the living God in the seventh, and worship on the seventh-day Sabbath, or I'll kill you? None of us wants, well, I shouldn't say want, but we're not, at least we're not doing that, right? We're not using an actual sword, but remember that the force is based on fear of the sword, Right? It's based on fear. Love can't be based on fear. How well have we done differentiating between the two powers as Protestants? Have we ever used fear to evangelize? Some are nodding their heads, some are just looking at me. As we look back at this time in history, the medieval, the dark ages, the first beast, We're tempted to stand up and say, Lord, I'm glad you didn't make me like that Roman Catholic over there. But remember this, 
Just remember this about the power of the sword, the power of the cross, and what the church does with other people. Back at Thyatira, he says, I gave her time to repent. Speaking of Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to what? She refuses to repent of her fornication, so I'm throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great distress unless they what? unless they repent of their doings. God gives Jezebel this false church authority, this one that uses the power of the cross backed up by the power of the sword. He gives her time to repent and she will not. She will not. The institution will not repent. But look who has time to. Look who God always gives an opportunity to. The people. The people that the institution is killing. Her followers have a chance. The beast's worshipers have a chance. So I'd say the letter is clear. Go after the institution. By the way, does that mean go after the Roman Catholic Church? No, go after the institution. Go after the oppression that the church can cause. Not just hers, but whose? Everyone's. As I told you, you weren't gonna like these next two sermons. Next time, I'm gonna take on the, the reformers. I'm gonna take on the Protestants. Because how did we do? How have we done with this message? If you think about it, have we really done any better than the church that came before us? Especially now, we're all members of that last church who Jesus has nothing good to say. And I think it has everything to do with what we've done with the authority that has been given to us. I think it has everything to do with the confusion and the perversion of the power of the cross and the power of the sword. Because the sword's beyond anything that we uh, may limit its uh, assignment to. Sometimes people think that when I'm talking about the sword, I'm only talking about military power. I'm not talking about military. I'm talking about any power that would use fear to coerce anything out of anybody. And by the way, Jesus is absolutely clear on this. He will not compromise when it comes to this. It's love or what? Or nothing. We feel pretty good about being you know, part of the remnant because we have the testimony of Jesus and we keep the commandments of God, but do we remember, do we remember that in order to keep the commandments of God, we have to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and love our neighbor as ourself? Jezebel's lovers are given time to repent. So he says this, he says, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. If you're hanging in there with love, if you continue to love, if you're hanging in there, even though it is absolutely overwhelming, tempting to be able to use some sort of other force besides love, if you're hanging in there, I'm not gonna give you any other burden. Just hang on. Do you remember what his last words were to Smyrna? Just what? Just hang on. 
By the way, the persecution of love will come from within too. Every time that we love somebody that the church does not think we should love or does not think we should welcome into the church, we are going to be persecuted from the inside. We're going to be told that we're lax. We're going to be told that we're compromising. We're going to be told that we're, that we're compromising our ideals, that we're soiling our doctrine. When actually, love is the only thing that will convict anybody of anything. See, God doesn't direct his wrath to the men and women of Thyatira. He directs his wrath at this false church institution, the one that's replaced God. It's the first time he uses the word remnant, by the way, right here. The first time he uses it. Those who what? Those who remain. Those who remain. The remnants are the ones that will not compromise when it comes to love. They'll never use the power of the cross for anything than what the power of the cross is used for. Sacrifice, martyrdom, righteousness, forgiveness, atonement. There's so many ways to weaponize the cross. So many ways a sword's power looks so tempted. I'll leave you with this. In Revelation 17, John is shown another vision. He sees the beast, but this time there's somebody riding on the beast. It's a woman, and she's dressed as a what? Dressed as a prostitute. John looks at her, and when he sees her, the angel almost reads his mind, because John actually says out loud for our sake that when I saw her, I wondered after her. I was amazed. I wondered after her. Now you could take that in two ways. One is, you could take it as I've heard it put before, is that since she's dressed as a prostitute, John is tempted, if you will. He's tempted maybe sexually. I don't think it has anything to do with that because this prostitution doesn't have anything to do with that kind of prostitution. This prostitution has to do what the church is doing in order to be the beast. And the reason that John is amazed that he wonders is because that prostitute was the woman that he saw in chapter 12. And the reason he's wondering is that it looks pretty good. See, because you gotta remember, all of John's friends, everybody he knew that began with this church were persecuted. They died in the era of Smyrna. Two different emperors have tried to martyr him. But God said, no, I got more in mind for you. Hadrian tried to boil him in oil. So I forgive John when he looks and says, you know what? This way of getting things done, maybe, maybe, just maybe we can, we can give in just a little. Maybe we can ease up on this persecution just a little. And the angel snaps him back to reality and says, what are you wondering after her for? So the idea when we talk about how easy it is or how not easy it is to discern between the beast and, and the church of the beast and the church of the lamb that was slain, I want you to remember that not even John could tell them apart. And he relied completely on who? So just remember, we proclaim Christ 
crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. This is our stumbling block. The power of the cross versus the power of what? Of the power of the sword. And any time that we think that we can use anything but love, even on those who we deem as, as, as not worthy, who we deem as heretics, if you will, I want you to remember this real quick, I just, uh, real fast. In Numbers, uh, the, the, the Balaam that I told you about, the, the, the synchronism between a, a, pro, a prophet of God, an absolute frost, a false prophet who sells Israel out for his, own, for his own money, for his own purpose. God even gave him this prophecy. This is how the narrative ends in the curse of Balaam and Balak. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of what? A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the borderlands of Moab and the territory of the Shethites. And then to Pergamum it ends, it says, even as I also received, I mean to Thyatira, even as I've also received authority from my father to the one who conquers, I will give the morning star. And who is the morning star? Jesus. Jesus was given to the heretic prophet back in Numbers 24. He was given actually even to the heretic power of Jezebel and to anybody who will continue to hold on to love even, even when it appears so tempting to use something else to get people to come to church. I'll give you Jesus, he says, I'll give you the morning star also. Hang in there, he says. The morning star's ours. We gotta hang on. Don't give up on love. There's nothing else for us. There's absolutely nothing else for us. I will also give, he says, the morning star. All for hanging in there. Thank you for hanging in there with me today. 